0: Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of 2 Thessalonians, so if you have a copy of God's Word, you can turn there. That's page 930, if you have a black church Bible. It goes Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and then First and Second Thessalonians. If you've hit Timothy, you've gone too far, turn back. We'll be reading 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we'll be reading verses 1 through 12. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Friends, I want to invite you again to take your Bible and open up to the passage that Patrick read for us earlier, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. I'm going to be preaching this text in its entirety, and it's always important to follow along with the Scriptures, but there's a lot going on in this passage, so I just want to really encourage you to keep your Bibles open and follow along uh, with me. Let's pray. Father, we come before you with humble hearts and we are asking, dear God, that you speak to us, that you would come and meet with us through the preaching of your word. Father, we recognize that we live in a world where there's just so much information, there's so many distractions, there are so many lies and so many deceptions. And so we pray, Father, for a mind of clarity. We pray, Father, that you would give us eyes to see and recognize and understand the truth. And we pray, Father, that you would cause our hearts to love the truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I want to begin this morning by asking you a question that I assume many of you have thought about before, at least once in your life Who is the Antichrist? Speculation abounds when it comes to this question. Over the last 2,000 years, there have been many attempts to specifically identify this mysterious figure. The early church believed that it was the different Roman emperors. You have emperors like Nero who severely persecuted the church. Then after that, with the rise, the rapid rise of Islam, many Christians believed that the prophet Muhammad was the Antichrist. During the time of the Reformation, you had many reformers, including men like Martin Luther, who believed that the pope and the papacy of the Roman Catholic Church was the Antichrist. Interestingly enough, during the Counter-Reformation, people in the Roman Catholic Church called Martin Luther the Antichrist. So they're calling one another the Antichrist. Other powerful men like Napoleon, Hitler, Mussolini, and Stalin have been called the Antichrist. Many of you are probably familiar with the popular Left Behind series, which tells a story of the end times, and there you have a depiction of the Antichrist himself. And in more recent times, different world leaders have been accused of being the Antichrist, including men like Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin then there are always the people who believe that the Antichrist is simply Satan himself. And then there are all the people who say that he's not really an individual, but a category of people. Needless to say, there is no shortage of answers to that question. People are fascinated and and maybe sometimes in an unhealthy way obsessed with trying to figure out who this mysterious figure is. And if you look from generation to generation, it seems like each generation presents its own possible candidate that seem to generally fit the description of the Antichrist, who I also understand to be the man of lawlessness. Now, just a quick note on that, I believe that when the biblical authors are talking about the man of lawlessness and the Antichrist, they're talking about the same individual. And I'll show you why a little bit later. But here's the problem with trying to identify the Antichrist. The Bible doesn't give us a direct answer to that question. There are only a handful of passages that refer to this infamous being. The Apostle John is actually the only New Testament author that talks literally, explicitly about the Antichrist only three times in his letters. Jesus prophesied about this figure in his earthly ministry, And then you have some of the Old Testament prophets that seem to be referring to him as well. And then we have the Apostle Paul, who arguably gives us the most detailed explanation about the man of lawlessness, which is found in our text today. So you can probably imagine that when it comes to this passage, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, so much ink has been spilled throughout the years, trying to identify specifically who the man of lawlessness is. But here's the even bigger problem with that. Not only does this text not tell us who specifically the man of lawlessness is, but to try to figure that out misses the whole point of this text. Unfortunately, Christians and non-Christians can get too easily sucked into focusing on this one thing, all the while missing the big point we need to first ask the question, why? Why is Paul talking about the man of lawlessness? Why, why do the Thessalonians need to hear about this individual? Was it to satisfy a curious itch or answer a tough theological question? Was it an unbalanced obsession over the controversial issues of eschatology, the study of end times? No, it was none of those things. When approaching... 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, right from the get-go, I want to make this absolutely clear, it's important that we realize that there will be a lot of unanswered questions. We have a ton of red herrings in this passage, just uh, things that are said where our minds can start going down this rabbit trail, and this passage has been the source of many great debates on the end times. And if we're not careful, we too can fall into the trap of focusing on all the wrong things while completely missing Paul's reason for writing this letter and this chapter to this church. So if we're going to stay on track, what we need to do is really keep in mind the context of the Thessalonians. We need to remember their experience and what's happening to this church during this time the letter is written and allow that to frame how we approach this text. So in chapter one, Paul primarily focused on comforting the saints in their affliction, in their suffering, in their persecution. But now in chapter two, Paul primarily focuses on correcting them in their confusion. And he's doing this because it's imperative that Christians learn to live with a clear knowledge of the truth. So here's point number one. Don't be troubled by fake news. Looking again at verse one, here's how Paul begins this chapter. He's moving on to a new section here, and he says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. You can see here that the big issue at hand, the main topic of discussion, is actually not about the man of lawlessness. All all that information pertaining to the man of lawlessness is there to serve a greater purpose. Paul is primarily addressing their confusion About the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and Christians being gathered together to the Lord in glory forever. Let me try to paint a picture for you of what's actually going on here. As you know by now, if you've been following along uh, with us in this series, the Thessalonians are suffering severe persecution. There is no ease or comfort in this life. There are many hostile enemies outside of the church that are actively opposed to the faith, and these Christians know that affliction is here to stay. Life is going to be hard as a believer, and they know that all of them will be persecuted. Some of them might find themselves in prison, and it's possible that a few of them will even die for their faith. This is the reality of the church. And so in light of this sobering reality, the main goal of of both of Paul's letters to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, is for the church to keep their eyes firmly fixed on the second coming of Christ. Their hope in this afflicted life was all bound up in the return of Jesus because they believed that Jesus would right every wrong. They believed that Jesus would balance the scales of justice They believed that Jesus would destroy his enemies, vindicate his people, rise all the dead in Christ to himself so that we will all forever be with the Lord. The second coming of Christ is that bright and beautiful light at the end of the tunnel for these suffering saints who are currently living in darkness. That's the day they're waiting for. That's the day they're living for that. That's their hope. And now try to imagine just how this church would have felt to hear the fake news that Jesus had already come and gone and they missed the coming of Christ. It's like you're stranded on a desert island with dangerous beasts all around you that want to devour you and eat you up as food. But despite the hard circumstances, you're, you're standing firm, you're, you're, you're staying strong, you're confident and courageous because you know, because someone that you know and trust told you on that satellite phone that rescue is on the way. The rescue team is coming. It may take some time, but they're going to be there, and so there is hope. And so you wait, and you survive, and you endure until you eventually get another call on that sat phone and... The person on the other end of the line says to you, "Listen. I got some bad news for you. The rescue team was there, but they're gone now, and they're not turning back, and you missed them." Can you imagine what that would have felt like? That that heart sinking feeling that they missed the rescuer? This fake news that, ca- that, that Christ had already returned caught the Thessalonians off guard so much so that they were confused and they were deeply troubled, which is why Paul says to them in verse 2, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. The day of the Lord is referring to the second coming of Christ. And and now it sounds like based on what Paul is saying that there were some troublemakers who were spreading rumors and lies in the church that Christ had already returned. And we're not told exactly how this fake news spread, but Paul wants to cover all of his basis here. He says, whether it's just someone saying something to you, a spoken word, or even if it's this supernatural angelic being that comes and tells you this, a spirit, Or even if you receive a letter that has our names, our very names signed to it, a letter seeming to be from us. Whatever the case may be, if you hear something that is contrary to the truth, don't be troubled by the fake news. Don't be anxious about a lie. In a world that is full of fake news about God, brothers and sisters, steady your hearts by remembering what you know to be true. That's point number two. Remember the real news. Verse three, Paul goes on and he says, let no one deceive you in any way. For that day, the day of the Lord, the second coming of Christ, will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? Now, what Paul is doing here is he is making a chronological argument he is talking about a sequence of events. And specifically, he talks about two events that must take place before Jesus returns. If these two events don't take place, then Christ will not return. And in saying all of this, what Paul is seeking to do is correct their confusion. And and even maybe deeper than that, he wants to comfort them by showing them that since these two events haven't occurred yet, It means they haven't missed the return of Christ. Now, we're told about two preceding events that are directly connected to one another. The first is this. He talks about the rebellion of many fake Christians. The rebellion of many fake Christians. Again, look at verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. Since the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, The world has always been marked by a rebellion against God. Generation after generation, age after age, humanity has rejected their creator and rebelled against the Lord. But here, Paul talks about a unique and distinct rebellion that is to come in the future. And this will be unlike Any of the regular pattern of rebellion in human history, rather, this will be identified as a great falling away from the faith. So it's a little bit misleading that the English translators use the word rebellion. The original Greek word that's used here is apostia. Apostasia. Sorry. (laughs) Apostasia. And when I say that word to you, what's the word that comes to mind? Apostasy that's the actual word apostasy it's the great apostasy you see this event won't be marked by rebellious unbelievers continuing to rebel in their unbelief this will be a sorrowful day when many who claim to believe in christ will turn away from christ they will apostatize and abandon their faith This is exactly what Jesus himself prophesied would would happen near the end of the age. He said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 10, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. See, brothers and sisters, I just want to pause here for a moment and say that we need to be careful about reading passages like this and thinking that it has nothing to do with us. Embedded in these words, both from the Lord Jesus and the Apostle Paul, is a sobering warning that you and I, as Christians, need to take very seriously. I believe with all of my heart in that precious doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. I believe that by the grace of God, those who are true believers will carry on until the end because Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. I see that in my Bible, which is why I believe in it. But the Bible also says, the same Bible says, that some people who profess to be believers will one day fall away from the faith, and it's possible that includes some of us in here today. And if you fall away, you will only prove that you were never really a Christian in the first place, because true Christians will endure until the end. That's what the apostle John talks about in 1 John chapter 2 verse 19. They the 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 these these people who have fallen away, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out. They went out of the faith that it might become plain that they all are not of us. True Christians will take the warning passages in the Bible seriously and they will pray earnestly for God's grace and strength to continue running in this race of faith. Brothers and sisters, this is a call to guard your hearts. It's a reminder not to grow cold in your love. Don't stop repenting. And don't stop believing in the gospel. Don't wander away from the faith and and toy with sin. By God's grace, run hard for Jesus. and Run hard until he takes you home to glory. The first event that will precede the return of Christ will be the rebellion of many fake Christians. But then he talks about a second event. A second event that is tied to the first event and it will be the revealing of the man of Lawlessness. Now, remember, the, the danger here is, is to get way too sucked in and, 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 and think about the questions that we're not given answers to. But, but just because we don't know who exactly this man of lawlessness is, this doesn't mean that we don't know certain things about the man of lawlessness. The Bible does tell us a few things about this individual, about this figure, so let's just focus on what the text says here. So look with me at verse 3 again. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. We talked about the first event. And then he talks about the second event. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. There, there, there are four things... From this text, that we can say about the man of lawlessness, that we can say about the Antichrist. First and foremost, we see that the man of lawlessness is, in fact, a man. He is not a spirit. This is so important to notice. He's not a spirit. He is not a fallen angel or demon. He is not a metaphor or a concept, but he is a man, a human being of flesh and blood. And and it's written there in the the singular, which means that Paul is not talking about a group or a type of people. This is a real man. Secondly, the man of lawlessness doesn't care about the law. This is the man of lawlessness. Lawlessness is what primarily characterizes him. He is anti-law. He is a man who marches to the beat of his own drum and he does what is right according to his, right, his eyes, not what is right according to God. He doesn't care about the law. Thirdly, we see that this man of lawlessness is destined to be destroyed. That's what it means when Paul calls him the son of destruction. This doesn't mean that he's the one who will destroy others. This means that he will be the one who will be destroyed. This man is doomed to die. It's the same title used for Judas Iscariot, that disciple who eventually betrayed Jesus. When Jesus is praying in his high priestly prayer in in John chapter 17, it says this in verse 12. He, He prays, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and he's talking about his disciples here. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. It's the same title that's used there, the son of destruction. And we know from the life of Jesus Christ that the one he's talking about is Judas Iscariot. The man of lawlessness is the son of destruction. He is the man doomed to die, just as Judas Iscariot was doomed to die. And here's the last thing that we know about the man of lawlessness from from these verses. The man of lawlessness... Elevates himself as God. Look at verse 4. Who opposes and exalts himself against every so called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. This man of lawlessness is highly antagonistic. He opposes. Not only that, but this man of lawlessness is highly arrogant. He exalts himself. This lawless man will try to claim universal supremacy over every other believed upon deity in the world. He will say that he is greater than the God of the Muslims. He will say that he is greater than the God of the Sikhs. He will say that he is greater than the gods of the Hindus. And not only that, but he will elevate himself over every object of worship. If there are people in the world who, who worship trees and rocks and, and the air and the earth, or, or maybe more um, relatable to, to our current circumstances, if there are people who are worshiping cars, money, and material possessions, he will take all of that and he will say that he is greater than all of that. But the most audacious and offensive act of this man of lawlessness is he will proclaim himself... To be the one true God. I want you to think about this. A man, a mere man, will proclaim himself to be God. You see, there is only one man in the history of the world who could truly say that he is God, and his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Son of Man which speaks to his humanity. And he is the only true Son of God which speaks to his deity. He is 100% man and he is 100% God. And so when this man of lawlessness comes up as a man and he elevates himself as a God, he is presenting himself as the direct antithesis to Jesus Christ. Do you know what that's called? That's called the Antichrist, Christ. This is why I understand the man of lawlessness and the Antichrist to be one and the same. The very description of the man of lawlessness describes the very essence of the Antichrist. Now, when we get to verses 9 and 10, there's more that Paul will say about this man of lawlessness But for now, let me remind you, because we we spent a lot of time unpacking this man of lawlessness, let me remind you that the point here is that Paul is making a chronological argument. He's reassuring them that Christ couldn't have returned because the man of lawlessness hasn't been revealed and the great apostasy hasn't happened yet. And this is something, notice here, this is something that's already been taught to them before. Look at verse 5. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? These things. He's referring to verses three and four. I've told you these things. In order to steady their troubled hearts, Paul reminds them of truth. You see, friends, the remedy against fake news is to remember the real news. The remedy against fake news is to remember the real news. If you want to be the type of Christian who is unshaken and untroubled by the fake news of the world, then you simply need to know your Bible. You need to devote yourself to the study of scriptures. Living with wisdom and clarity in this world isn't about understanding, dissecting, and refuting all of the fake news out there. It's about knowing, understanding, and believing the truth, about believing the real news, about believing in the Bible. It's about being so fortified in your mind by truth that fake news just falls on you and just rolls off of you. Now, sometimes the real news isn't always the most easy to hear news. I think you understand this, right? The, the truth can be complex. The truth can be hard to swallow. Yes, the truth fights against confusion, but it may still contribute to fear. I mean, just think about what these Thessalonians were taught. The great apostasy, the rebellion on the last day, the revelation of this man of lawlessness. I mean, even though this is real news, let's be honest, this doesn't sound like the greatest news. But Paul doesn't want them to be afraid because as scary as all of this sounds, there is a happy ending to this story. So here's point number three. Don't be afraid of the real news. You need to remember the real news and you need to be unafraid of the real news. Look with me at verse six. Paul goes on and he says, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. St. Augustine was the Bishop of Hippo who lived during the fourth and fifth century. And he is one of the most important and influential thinkers of our world. I remember years ago when I was in my early church history class, my, my professor, many of you know Dr. Haken, said that the Lord gave three gifts, three precious gifts to the early church He gave the Bible, He gave the Holy Spirit, and He gave St. Augustine. That's how important Augustine is. If you know anything about Augustine, you know that he was gifted with an incredible mind. And so many of his writings have influenced Christianity even to this day. You probably don't even realize just how influenced and shaped you are by Augustine. And do you know what Augustine said about verses six and seven? Talking about the the verse we just read. This is what he said in his seminal book, The City of God. He said, I admit that the meaning of this completely escapes me. <laughs> so there you have it. One of the greatest Christian minds in the history of the church was utterly confused about how to understand the details of this text. Not gonna lie, I am mildly comforted by that. <laughs> you know, when I'm in my office last week crying, trying to figure all this out. But, but listen, that, that didn't stop Augustine from trying. He endeavored to understand as much as he could, and we're going to seek to do, this, do the same here. Now, we've already taken the time to unpack as best as we can the man of lawlessness in verses three and four. But there is another mysterious figure. In our passage today. And believe it or not, this has caused even more confusion and even more scholarly debate than the man of lawlessness himself. Who or what is the restrainer? Who or what is the restrainer? I'm, I'm asking that question that way very intentionally. The reason why this is such a difficult passage to interpret is because if you look at verses 6 and 7, in verse 6, it sounds like the restrainer is an object, right? He says, You know what is restraining him, verse 6. But then in verse 7, it says, But it sounds like the restrainer is a person, only he who now restrains. So the question is 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 it a person? Is it a force? Is it an object? And as you can imagine with these types of questions, speculation once again abounds. Many have just quickly read this text and come to the conclusion that that what Paul is doing is he's obviously talking about God. But when you really start to pay attention to the grammar of the text, that, that doesn't really do justice to the text. I mean, if it was that obvious, then I don't think people like Augustine would have been so confused by this. Some have argued that the very act of preaching the gospel is what restrains the man of lawlessness. Others have argued that it's the civil government. Others have argued that it's the the church and the expansion of the church. Others have said that these are angelic beings who, by the Lord's bidding, is holding back the man of lawlessness. And, And that's because we see angels doing this kind of restraining work in other parts of the Bible. And then, there are still others who say that it's actually the devil himself who is holding back the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, until it is the appropriate time for him to be revealed. As you can see, there's no real consensus among pastors, Bible scholars, or commentators. Try as we might, the reality is, we just don't know who or what the restrainer is. So... That's a question that is going to go unanswered because I don't have an answer for you. All we know for certain from what we see in the Bible is that the man of lawlessness is restrained at the moment. The man of lawlessness is held back by something or someone. But then look at what Paul says next in verse 7. Yes, the man of lawlessness is restrained by this restrainer, verse 7, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Well, that's, that's interesting, right? On the one hand, you have the man of lawlessness, he's restrained, but the mystery of lawlessness is already, at, is already at work. Now, I understand that to mean that although the man of lawlessness is restrained and he is held back, his, his presence and his influence can already be felt in the world by different prototypes of the Antichrist. That seems to be what the Apostle John says in his letter. John seems to corroborate with this story. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, John writes, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, a future Antichrist, so now many Antichrists have come. 1 John chapter 4, verse 3, Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. And then in Second John verse seven, "For many deceivers have gone out into, into the world, those who do not confess, the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. The presence and the influence of the man of lawlessness is felt through the actions and the deceptions of many who bear in them the spirit of the Antichrist. This is part of the real news. This is the real world that we are living in. There are prototype Antichrist in the world today. And this mystery of lawlessness will continue to work in our world until it culminates and climaxes at the revealing of the man of lawlessness. But listen, this is not how the story ends. It's not even how the passage climaxes here. At the appointed time, the restraints on the man of lawlessness will be removed. And look at verse 8 here. This is so beautiful. Verse 8 And then the lawless one or the man of lawlessness will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Unfortunately, I think people can read this chapter and become far too easily preoccupied and mesmerized by the man of lawlessness while neglecting to see the sheer beauty and awesomeness of Jesus Christ. If you want to know my honest opinion, I don't really care who this man of lawlessness is. Because ultimately, what matters is that this Antichrist, who proclaims himself to be the God-man, will be crushed by the one true God-man, Jesus Christ. (laughs) This isn't two equal powers going toe-to-toe in a fight. There is no competition here. There is no struggle here. There is no effort on the part of Christ. When Jesus appears, this man who elevated himself to the status of God will be brought to To nothing. Jesus only needs to breathe on this man and he will obliterate the man of lawlessness. That's who we're talking about here. I can't wait to sing our last song in the service All Glory Be Forever. Here is how the third and the last verse goes. You can follow along with me if you want to look at the song. The third and the last verse All Glory Be Forever. Now, our future's fixed, our journey clear. God will not let us go. Every trial that tempts our hearts to fear, He'll use to give us hope. All creation groans as we await what our eyes have longed to see. And listen to this every pain and evil we've long endured will be crushed by Christ, our King. Friends, that is how the story ends. is the climax of this passage. That is the climax of the world. Jesus wins. So, we ultimately don't have to be afraid of the enemies of God. We don't have to be afraid of this real news about the rebellion and the revelation of the man of lawlessness and the mystery of lawlessness at work. We don't have to be afraid, but that is not an excuse for us to be idle and careless in this world. What Paul says next should lead all of us to stand firm, be on guard, and be sober-minded. So you can come back to to, to the outline there. Point number four, be sober-minded about the real news. In verse eight, Paul clearly explained the fate of the man of lawlessness. Jesus will kill him. But in verse 9, Paul goes on to explain the activity of the man of lawlessness. And and what he does is is he pulls back the curtains and he shows us what's going to happen behind the scenes and what is going on behind the scenes. Look at verse 9. Paul says, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, This is why you cannot say that the man of lawlessness is Satan himself. They are two distinct figures. The man of lawlessness comes by the activity of Satan or by the influence of Satan. In other words, the man of lawlessness is an agent of the devil. And he will bring with him the ability to perform supernatural and satanic acts of deception. Again, in verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Friends, I think we need to understand that there will come a day when supernatural acts will lead people to believe in a lie we may very well see miracles being done one day the likes of which we have never seen before. And this will wreak havoc on the world because these miracles, unlike the miracles of Jesus and the Apostle Paul, will not enlighten the soul. On the contrary, they will darken and deceive the soul. Brothers and sisters, if we are not sober-minded, And standing firm on the truth of God's word, then there is the danger that we'll be led away and deceived by the schemes of the devil. These verses here, these final verses, remind us that the church, our church right now, has an old and cunning enemy in our midst. He is the one behind the scenes who is orchestrating all of the wicked deception. He is the one who is pumping out all of the fake news in the world about God to make God's people stumble. In the beginning, he was there in the form of the serpent doing a great work of deception against Eve. And in the end, he will still be there this time working through the man of lawlessness doing a great work of deception against those who are perishing. As we can see here in this text, the perishing are basically the only ones who will actually be deceived by the, satan- the, 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 sat- the satanic powers of the man of lawlessness. Right? Look at verse 10. And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. Now, I think it's important to understand here That unbelievers won't perish because of these satanic deceptions. It's very important to understand. What I mean is, on the last day, the unbeliever won't be able to to say that they're innocent and that they were just a victim of the lies of the devil. Look at verse 10. Paul explains why people perish, and it's not because of satanic deception. Verse 10, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, why are they perishing? Because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. People don't perish because of Satan's deceptions. They perish because they refuse to love the truth. And because they refuse to love the truth, they're deceived by the devil. That's the logic of this text. Paul puts the onus on the individual. It is their actions that cause them to perish. But it gets even worse than that. Look at verse 11. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Once again, think about the logic of the text. Because unbelievers refuse to love the truth. As a result, God sends them a strong delusion. Okay, it's not the other way around. God, God's strong delusion doesn't result in their refusing to love the truth. It's their refusing to love the truth that results in God's strong delusion. We see this pattern in Scripture again and again of God as an act of punishment, giving up sinners to the desires of their heart. We saw this last week, didn't we, in the, in, in the final judgment of God. Those who want nothing to do with God are given exactly what they want in hell, eternal separation and alienation from the Lord. We, we, we see it in, in Romans 1, the people who refuse to know God, they suppress the truth and they choose a life of sin. Romans 1.24, God, God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity. Romans 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Similarly, in the last days, because the ungodly refuse to love and believe the truth, and because they find pleasure in unrighteousness, that's how verse 12 ends, God will give them exactly what they want. He will send to them as his punishment a strong delusion, basically a lie So that they continue believing in a lie, therefore solidifying their own condemnation. That is the judgment of God for those who do not love the truth and they find pleasure in the false lies of the devil. Okay, let's breathe. There's obviously a lot going on in these final verses and I know it's not easy to hold everything together. So I think it'd be good for you to to meditate on this text further, pray for understanding, ask good questions, listen to other good sermons by by people who are a lot smarter than I am. But for the sake of our time, let, let me just end by giving you one big takeaway from these final verses, okay? Here is the big thing that I want you to understand in this last point. What you choose to love matters. Your affections of the heart matter. If you choose to love the truth, the truth about God, the truth about the gospel, the truth about Jesus Christ, then you will be saved. But if you choose to love sin and you find pleasure in wickedness and unrighteousness, then you will be condemned. That's what it boils down to. The great battle that you are fighting is always at the level of your heart. It is always at the level of your afflictions. It is in the realm of your pleasures. What is it that you love? What is it that gives you a great sense of pleasure and joy in this world? You see, the devil will do all that he can through the mystery of lawlessness now And on that last day, through the man of lawlessness, he will do everything that he can to deceive the world by making sin seem lovable and unrighteousness seem pleasurable. And when I say that, you realize that his tricks haven't changed over the last thousands of years. That is exactly what he did with Eve in the Garden of Eden, and that is exactly what he will continue to do until the day the Lord Jesus returns. Brothers and sisters, that is why we must always guard our hearts against the temptations of the devil. We must be sober-minded and look out for his devious traps. Love what is true and good. There is real joy and satisfaction there. And hate what is false and evil. That is poison to the soul. And may God give you all the grace to do so, until he comes to vanquish all of his enemies and take his people home to glory. Let's pray.